is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Dear Lord, we are gathered now to hear your word. And we don't just come to this time because it's something that we're supposed to do. Sunday morning, so that's just what churches do. We come to this time because we recognize that your word is the only source of life that we have. So I pray this morning that as I preach, you will guide my words, that you will take the things that accurately reflect your truth, drive them deep into the hearts of each and every person here. Anything that I have said that doesn't, Lord, that you will strike it from their memory that I won't even say it. Lord, that all of us will be committed first and foremost to the scriptures, to allowing them to control our beliefs, our thoughts, our actions, every aspect of our lives that we will not in pride try to usurp the authority that belongs solely to you. And so that this morning, Lord, as we approach a new topic, as we take this week and next week to examine it, that you will help us to be as biblically faithful as we can be in everything that we say, do, think, etc. Lord, we want to be completely governed by the text. So we come this morning very humbly asking that you will do that for us. In Jesus' name, amen. About three or four weeks ago now, uh, Jamie and the kids and I had a very unique experience. How many of you subscribed to Groupon? Raise your hand if you subscribed to Groupon. Okay. Did you see the Groupon about a month ago for uh, two Norfolk Tides tickets for $9? Anyone remember seeing that one? Okay. A few of you do. That was a great deal. So for us, family of four, 18 bucks to go see the Norfolk Tides play. It's pretty good. So we decided to take advantage of it. We also decided that it would be good if we invited our small group along, so we forwarded on everyone in our small group. A number of families decided they were going to come as well, and so at the end, I think we had about 10 people total show up uh, at Norfolk Tizer at the Harbor Park about 6.30 on a Wednesday night to go to the game, and we had to go to the box office first and get our tickets, and we got great seats. We were section 117, which is right down next to the grass on the third baseline, right where you can catch a foul ball. We're getting knocked out by one, which almost happened twice to us. That's a whole other story in and of itself. But as we're walking to our seats in this line, we pass a lady who worked for the Tides, and she asked us if we need any help finding our seats. And when she asked the question and I looked at her, I realized that I knew this lady. I recognized her. I didn't know who she was, though. So I said, no, we know where we're going. And she asked if we were all together, and I said yes. And she asked where we were from, and I told her, oh, we all go to church together. We're in a... We're in a small group together. Oh, really? What church? And it kind of leads into this conversation. And in the middle of the conversation, I, I finally realized who it was that I was talking to. It was Kay Young, who's a reporter for Wavy TV 10. So I said, hey, you, you work for Wavy News 10. You're the reporter from, the, from television. She said, oh, yeah, I used to. I, I quit working there. I now work here at Harbor Park. I guess you worked in their PR department. Uh, part of her job is to stand out before the game and recruit people to come out onto the field to play games in between each half inning. And so she points to me and the three people standing closest to me and says, would you all, you and your family, like to come out and and play a game together on the field? 
And she's pointing to myself, to Nathaniel, to Desiree Gall, wherever she is, uh, there she is, and to Isaac Tomberlin. Okay, so we've, this is the family she's, she's pointing to, and I'm like, well, these two aren't part of my family. My, my wife and daughter are down the other end, but yeah, we'd love to come out and play a game. She says, great, I'm going to have you come out and play the craft singles game. So you're just going to have to throw some things on a, on a mat. I'll explain it to you in a minute when, later on, so come on out. So at the end of the third inning, so I'm like, great. So I tell Jamie, we're going to go play a game out on the field. Now, if you know my wife, you know how much she loves being in front of large groups of people, especially a whole stadium full of people. And so she offers at that moment to allow Desiree to be my wife for 15 minutes. No offense, Desiree, but I was a little offended by this because I thought if this is all it takes to have my wife give up on me, this is not a good good sign for the future. But again, that's a whole other story for a whole other day. So I say, no, we're going to do this together. This is a family memory. The kids are never going to forget this. We're going to go out there together. We're going to play this game. We're going to win a prize if we win. That's what she had told us. There's a prize. And so from that point on, up until the end of the third inning, I spend that entire time thinking, what's the prize going to be? That's it. It's the craft singles game. Are they going to give us like free cheese for a year, like a pack of cheese every week or something like that? That didn't seem that unreasonable. Particularly when you looked at the other games that were being played, I mean, on the kind of low end, you had uh, this Pizza Hut game where they had to throw pizza pans into a circle. Whoever got the most pans in got a free pizza, so that's like a $10 prize. That's kind of the low end. On the high end, a guy had a chance to win $10,000 by throwing three baseballs into a target. He got two out of three. I felt so bad for him on that one, but he was really close. So I didn't think that my expectations here for maybe like free cheese for a year or something was that that outrageous. So finally, into the third inning comes. And my guys, come on, let's go. And we had to go meet up at the information booth. So we're standing up there waiting, and she's not coming, and we're just standing there. And I see this other family of four standing there waiting. And so I decide to ask them, hey, are you guys here for the, for the craft singles game? And they say yes. And now immediately we start, like, eyeing each other, like trying to <laughs> size up the competition. And I'm going to be really honest. I didn't tell my family this that night. At that point there, I was pretty sure we were going to lose the game because I knew it. I knew it involved tossing things, and the mom and dad were, you know, just average, normal mom and dad, but they had two boys who were both older than our kids, or looked to be older than our kids, and I love my daughter to death. She's the sweetest thing in the world, but she's six years old, and she has as much sports ability as I do, so that's a bad, bad sign, so I thought, we're not going to win, so I began preparing them. Okay, guys, it's not about winning the prize. (laughs) It's just about having fun. This is a family memory. Whatever happens, this is going to be great. We're going to have fun. We're standing there doing this when all of a sudden Kay Young and her little crew of people walks up and says, all right, let's go, guys. And so we all follow her down this back stairwell through this long hallway, down another set of stairs and into a dark, deep tunnel. And we come out on the other side right at eye level with the field. We had gone underneath the stadium. And she says, all right, here's the game. We're going to go out there and we're going to unroll this big round tarp. And on the tarp, it's printed to look like the top of a grill. And so there's hamburger patties all over this. Each person in your family is going to get three square yellow bean bags to represent Kraft cheese. We're going to line you up, and we say go. You've got to throw them out there. Whoever gets the most cheese on the hamburgers, on the tarp, wins the prize. All right? So that's, this is the game. And so uh, she also says, because this is a PR event, don't forget, you know, look like you're having fun, you know, yell, wave to the crowd, whatever. you gotta, you got to be enjoying yourself while you're out there. So she runs us out on the field. They introduce us. We're waving to the crowd. Uh, you know, it's hard to get real excited about this, but we're waving to the crowd. The other family goes first, and they line up. She says go, and they toss their beanbags. And then a guy runs out to count them. He says, five, 
five bean bags on the hamburgers. When I see five, I'm thinking, we can beat them. That, we, can, we can do better than five. So I tell everyone, look, aim for the closest hamburger. She said we could pile them up. It didn't matter how many cheeses were on the hamburger, just as long as they were there. I said, aim for the closest hamburger. So we all line up. She yells, go. We all toss our bean bags. The guy runs out and he counts them again. And we had eight bean bags. And so the Potts family won the prize. We were pretty excited. I, I, I was, yes, thank you. Thank you. Not expecting that. I, uh, I waved to the crowd, you know, yeah, and out of the corner of my ear, I hear Jamie behind me screaming at the top of her lungs, we are the champions. <laughs> okay, that was a slight embellishment. Real slight. My son is going to have a heart attack now and die. Um, we run off the field. She says, hey, good job, guys. We say good job to the other family. She says, follow my assistant here. She'll take you and give you a prize. And so she runs off to get ready for the next game. So here we go back through the tunnel, back down the hallway. We stop at this office, and she says, hold on, let me go in and get your prize. She goes in. We stand there for a minute. I'm waiting. I'm wondering. And she comes out, and she hands me four of these. Make sure everybody can see this. And there's a stack of them. And I'm, I'm feeling them like this, and I don't want to look too curious because, you know, somehow that's not appropriate for me to do. So I'm like, trying to feel them to figure out what they are. And I'm like, is this an envelope? Is there something inside of it? And Nathaniel, who's not at all ashamed of being curious, says, Dad, what is it? And I say, I don't know. It feels like a magnet. And the lady who gives me the prize says, that's exactly what it is. They're magnets. It's four magnets that say, Kraft Singles, the American cheese. That was our big prize. And, And to make it even worse than that, they then proceeded to give four magnets to the losing team as well. <laughs> I mean, come on. We didn't even get anything special for trying this at all. Just, yes, thank you. Thank you. It was very, very disappointing because this entire time my expectations were up here and now we got to the end and I got four magnets and we threw three of them away at the park. This is the only one that we kept just for the memory of the event. I share that story with you because I fear that some of you may have somewhat of a similar reaction both today and next week as we look at this second topic that I told you that we wanted to look at here um, regarding some things that I just felt needed to be addressed here at Cornerstone. We spent the last two weeks looking at the issue of biblical modesty. And you know, just kind of as a concluding comment on that whole discussion there, I hope you realize that You can't even cover that topic in two weeks. There was more to say than what I said. I just had to narrow and limit and and cut down to the bare minimums of what I wanted to communicate to you. But I hope that you'll continue thinking about that, that you'll continue applying it and trying to understand biblically how the scriptures and how a right view of modesty affects every area of your life. I hope it was clear. If it wasn't, you always uh, can come to me and ask. But today we want to look at the second topic that I mentioned to you, and that was the issue of alcohol. And I started that first sermon by simply observing the fact that when you bring these two subjects up, inevitably, people get upset, right? It's just just going to happen. People get upset. They get upset because they see both of those subjects, modesty and alcohol, as being very, very personal issues, and they get upset because so many other people have mishandled those topics in the past, and and they feel like if anyone brings it up, it's going to be more of the same. And so as I've approached both subjects, I've approached them as if I'm fighting an uphill battle on either one. But while 
it's true that people get upset about either subject. I would say, just based on my own personal opinion, that it's probably ten times more true that people get upset about the issue of alcohol than they do about the issue of modesty. That this subject here has the tendency to inflame passions in people, inflame strong feelings in people that almost no other subject does. And that's true on both ends of the spectrum. You're going to have people in this room, I imagine, who are going to be on the anti-drinking crowd. They're going to say that alcohol is wrong in any and every context, and they're very, very passionate about what they believe. Then you're going to have people on the other end of the spectrum who are very much for it and say there's nothing wrong with it at all. And they too are going to be very passionate about what they believe. few other subjects where you get those kind of reactions on either end of the spectrum. And look, while I'm all for debate, though I've admitted to you many times I'm a terrible debater. If you ever want to make yourself feel better, engage me in a debate because I won't be able to win. I'm a terrible debater, but I'm all for debate. And while I'm all for being passionate about what you believe, it has been my observation that on this subject there really is much more heat than light much of the time. And for those of you who um, maybe don't understand why that is, like you hear me say that and you're like, he's probably right, but I don't get why. Can I simply make a, 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 like the most obvious statement of the morning? As far as I know, modesty or immodesty has never really destroyed a family. I've never seen it. As far as I know, I've never seen a husband or a wife who was completely destroyed by modesty or immodesty. I've never seen a, a, a parent beat a child because of modesty or immodesty. But you see all those things with alcohol. Some of you in this room have been greatly impacted by this topic because of parents, because of a husband because of a wife, because of a child, a brother, a sister, a good friend, okay? As I approach this subject, I want you to understand that I recognize that, okay? I'm sensitive to that up front. I don't want to, to make the wounds worse for you. I'm not trying to do anything to hurt anyone in here or make anyone upset, but I am observing that when you talk about the issue of alcohol, it's very similar to, to walking out into a, a minefield that's been strategically placed between two warring camps that are shooting at each other. Okay? So as we come into this subject, I've had to do my best to say, all right, I'm not going to try to uh, pacify this side or that side. I'm not going to try to be diplomatic to this group or to that group. I'm not going to worry about this constituency or that constituency. As much as we're capable of doing, we want to ensure that we are being as biblically faithful as we can be, and then we just allow God to drop the chips where, how, and on whom he chooses to drop them. Now, as I have been studying this issue of alcohol for several weeks now, it has occurred to me that there are really only two primary questions that we need to ask and answer to really understand this topic biblically. And, th and that's it. And if you think, well, it's more than that, well, no, it's really not. These two main questions will give us a thorough, yet condensed, understanding of the issue of alcohol. Now, there will be other questions, secondary questions, that will arise from them. But if we can get these two nailed down over the next two Sundays, I think we'll be doing pretty good. Number one is this. What does the Bible actually say about the issue of alcohol? And realize the importance of that question, because there's a lot of things that people think the Bible says about alcohol, 
but they've never actually studied the subject for themselves, so they don't really know. So we want to stop and just first thing ask the question, what does the Bible actually say? What's really there on this subject? We've got to know that before we can do anything else with it. Number two, how then should a Christian live in relation to alcohol? Okay, so once we've established what's actually in the text, now we need to come back and ask that second, much more practical question, what does that mean for us? What am I doing then with it? How, how do I make decisions or live in relation to it? Those are the two big questions, and obviously there's no possible way that I can answer both of those questions in one Sunday. And so similar to the uh, Sermon on Modesty, this is a two-part message. Just warning everyone up front, you were here for that, you know how to approach it. It's all I can do. We're going to have to take one question each week, and hopefully by the end, you're going to have a a complete picture of what the scriptures teach on the issue of alcohol. And I would suggest to you that you really need to hear both sermons. If you only hear today and then you don't come back next week, you're you're not going to really understand. Because today is is just laying a foundation. That's it. You you don't just lay a foundation and then go live, right? If you're building a house, that's not what you do. You, You start with the foundation, but you have to put the structure up over it. And so if you just come today and you're not here next week, please make sure you go online and listen to it. Or for the people who are here next week who aren't here today, I'm going to have to say the same thing. If all they hear is next week's message without this foundation, it's not going to work. It's not going to make sense. We need the whole understanding to really get how the believer should live and operate in relation to alcohol. And so let's begin by simply looking at what the Bible actually says about the issue of alcohol. As I was thinking about it, there are two ways that we could possibly do this, okay? Option number one would be for us to turn to each and every passage of Scripture where the issue of alcohol is brought up, okay? There's 66 books in the Bible, Old and New Testament. How many times do you think the issue of alcohol, just the terms, okay, just the terms related to it are brought up throughout the Bible? Any, any clue? Any guess? 20? Okay. 400? That's a very specific one, and you're very wrong. Actually, whoever said 400 was right. There's about 400 references to alcohol throughout the Old and New Testament. Can you imagine how long that would take for me to work through 400 references of of Scripture in order to teach on something? That would be way, way too long. That's why I haven't asked you to turn anywhere specific yet. You'll notice that that's a little different than what we normally do. Not only is it too long, but I fear that if we took that approach or even attempted to take that approach, that we would get so bogged down in the specifics of each and every passage that we would lose the overall understanding that we're trying to gain here. We would really, truly miss the forest for the trees because we'd be so narrowed in on each and every place. In order to really understand what the Bible actually says about this topic, we have to back up and take a much more high-level, kind of a general overview-style approach. We, we, we need to get in a helicopter and kind of hover above the forest for a while and just make some general observations, okay? The, the forest is primarily green, and there are some pines and oaks and, and maples, okay? Just real high-level, general understanding of what is here so that we can then really begin to see it. And so what I want to give you this morning, what I'm calling four factual observations regarding the scripture's view and teaching on alcohol. And there's one word on the screen there that should really be like standing out to you like a red flag almost. It's the word factual. Because with the word factual, I am communicating to you that what I'm about to give you is in no way my opinion. No way my personal preference or or view. Okay, It's strictly the 
facts of Scripture. And that's a pretty hard claim to make. That's a pretty bold claim to make. But I'm hoping that what I'm going to do is I be, unfold this for you and work you through a number of passages along the way here. Hopefully what you'll begin to see is that, okay, what we see on the screen is in fact just simple factual observations that all believers should hold to regardless of your personal preference or choices, okay? That's, that's what I'm aiming at as much as possible, and you will have to be the judge as to whether or not I did that appropriately. Four factual observations. Here is factual observation number one. Factual observation number one is that alcohol is an assumed piece of the cultural context of the Bible. It's an assumed piece of the cultural context of the Bible, meaning it's just there. It just shows up in stories and in instances and in situations with no explanation, no commentary, no saying whether or not it's right or wrong, whether it's a good or bad or anything like it. It's just there in the story. You find references to alcohol from Genesis through Revelation, from Genesis 9 all the way to Revelation 19. It's across the entire spectrum of Scripture. It just shows up. And so what I want to give you is just a few, uh, a handful, maybe five, six, seven illustrations of this. And you can turn to them if you want, but most, I tried to pick stories that you would be familiar with, things you would know so that you could say, okay, I see what he's saying. I see what he's saying and keep with me pretty quickly here because we have a lot to look at. But the first one I want to show you is Genesis chapter 14. This is the story of Melchizedek blessing Abraham. Remember that Lot and some of the uh, people in Sodom and Gomorrah have been taken captive by some uh, invading kings. And so Abraham takes a commando force to go and rescue them. And he goes and he does that and he's on his way back when who comes to meet him but Melchizedek, king of Salem. And he comes out to bless Abraham. And when he comes out to bless him, he brings with him bread and wine. And you say, what's so significant about that? Nothing. And that's the point. He just does it. There's no commentary there as to whether or not it's right or wrong, whether there's a good or bad. There's no explanation as to why or anything like that. He simply brings it out. It's just a part of what you do. If he's going to come and he's going to bless Abraham for what he's done, he brings bread and wine. It's an assumed piece of the cultural context of the scriptures. Job chapter 1 is the next one. In Job chapter 1, Satan has come to God and he said, look, I'd like to test Job. He seems to be a man who loves you, a man of great faith. I want to see if that's legitimate. And God says, okay, you may. And one of the very first things that Satan attacks is Job's family. And the way that that happens is the story says that, that Job's children had all gathered together in the house of the oldest son to eat and to drink wine. And then a windstorm comes and, and kills them all. And you're like, ha-ha, see? See, it was bad because, see, a windstorm came and killed them. No, 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 no. God, God wasn't punishing them there. There's no judgment in that story. It's simply telling you what they were doing. They got together to feast. They did it. There was alcohol present. And then Satan is the one who comes in and kills them in order to test Job. Again, there's nothing significant about the wine. And that's what's significant about that in the story. It just shows up. It's an assumed piece. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, this is a story where Hannah comes and is praying at the tabernacle for a child. Do you remember this story? She's, she's there and she's praying because she's barren. She's never been able to have a child. Her husband's other wife has had lots of children and she feels inadequate. She's sad about this. So she's praying and she's praying like this. 
She's mouthing her words, but she's not saying them out loud. And Eli, the priest, walks by, and he sees this, and what does he say to her? Why are you coming to the tabernacle drunk? Now, why would Eli just assume that Hannah has been drinking in the story? Well, obviously, it's not uncommon for it to happen. Obviously, he's seen things similar to this before, and so when he walks up on the scene, he just makes this initial knee-jerk assumption that obviously this, woman, this woman's been drinking. Why are you doing that? Again, she's not been drinking. She clarifies that with him. My point is here, it's an assumed piece. It just shows up in the text. He just thinks that's what she's been doing. Second Chronicles 31 is the next one. This is where the people are bringing their offerings to the Levites and to the priests in obedience to the law. And one of the things they bring in great abundance, along with all the other items that they bring, is wine. It's alcohol. They're giving it to God's servants so that they can do the things that they need to do. Ezra chapter 6. This is the exiles returning back to the land. King Darius sends a letter with them to the governor of the province, and he says in the letter, look, give them wine along with all the other necessities of life that they're going to need, like sheep or bulls, rams, sheep, wheat, salt, and oil. King Darius, assuming that wine, that alcohol, is just as important to them as all these other pieces are, and so he commands it to be given. What about in the New Testament? John chapter 2, that most famous passage that everyone who wants to discuss alcohol immediately turns to. This is the wedding in Cana, Jesus' very first miracle. Don't forget that. This is his very first time he's ever done something like this. He and his mother, they're standing there at the wedding, and whether because of poor planning or too many guests or a little too much merrymaking, uh, they are out of wine. And so Mary says to the person there, hey, look, whatever, whatever my son tells you to do, do it. And Jesus very kindly says, okay, go fill these, these vessels with water they do that, and he says, now dip it out and go take it to the, to the master of ceremonies, the person who's in charge of the wedding feast. And they do that, and when he takes the cup, he, he takes a drink, and he's like, wow. <laughs> yeah, the hiccup's not in the text. He says, wow, you, you normally, someone gives their good wine up front, and then when everyone's had enough to drink, they give them the bad wine, but you did the opposite. You, you gave us the bad wine first and saved the good stuff for the end. And let me just say on this one that, if you are of the opinion in that particular verse that Jesus is making grape juice, the burden of proof there lies on you. I just want you to understand that. I'm not saying you're wrong. I, I, we, none of us can go back and taste whatever it was Jesus made. But the burden of proof lies on you because when that word is used, it means wine. It, it means alcohol. Okay? You, you're going to have to explain why in this particular case it doesn't mean that. And I think that's going to be very difficult for you to do in honesty. All right? But here's what Jesus is making, and he apparently makes it good. Again, there's no reference or comment made in the text whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. Whether there's any inherent right or wrong in this, it's simply a part of the story. It's an assumed piece of the context of the culture. You see it in the epistles when Timothy is advised to drink alcohol for his stomach's sake. You see it in the qualifications for elders, which is very interesting in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. The command or the qualification given for an elder is that they not be drunkards. In other words, that they not be controlled by wine, which assumes that they're consuming it. It assumes that, that it's present, that it's a part of life. They just can't be under its control. That's the problem that, that Paul wants to address in both of those situations. Again, 
my point here is simply this, that as you look at the issue of alcohol coming up over and over and over and over again throughout the scriptures, what you see is that many, many times it's just there. It's just there with no explanation, no commentary given. It's an assumed piece of the cultural context of the Bible, and you need to accept that. Number two is this, is that alcohol can be associated with both good and evil. And here's where you begin to kind of get an idea of where people stand on this particular issue. Because if someone is completely against it, then all they're going to do is point you in the scriptures to its evils, which are there, okay? We're going to address that in a second. Or, if someone's completely for it, then all they're going to point you to is the things that show it as good, which are also there. The honest answer is that it's associated with both, okay? In the same Bible, the same scriptures, it's associated with both things, and I'm going to show you each. In relation to the good, in Genesis chapter 27, as Isaac is blessing Jacob, one of the things that he prays God's blessing on Jacob for is that he will have plenty of wine, just like he will have plenty of grain and the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth. This is something that in Isaac's mind is good for his son, and he hopes that God will give it to him in abundance. In Leviticus chapter 23, this was interesting. You're familiar with all the various offerings that had to be given to the Lord, right? There's Passover offerings, daily offerings, morning, evening. There's bulls, lambs, sheep, turtle doves, all this stuff. Are you also familiar with the drink offering? This was something that had to be presented to the Lord. This is not Coke. It's not water. It's wine. God wants wine presented to him as an offering, Leviticus 23, 13. He calls it a sweet-smelling aroma, a pleasing aroma to him. And if you're saying, well, no, 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 that's probably not alcohol. God wouldn't want alcohol given to him. Well, understand that later on in Numbers 25, God says, okay, look, if you don't want to do wine, you can also do strong drink. And you say, what's the difference between wine and strong drink? As best I can tell, and no one's 100% certain on this, just again so you know, But as best as anyone can guess, wine is alcohol made from grapes. Strong drink is alcohol made from grains, okay? Barleys, wheats, things like that. So beer, whiskey, that kind of stuff would be a strong drink. Using this term, wine is is wine, what you normally think of as wine, okay? So if you don't want to give wine as a drink offering to the Lord, you can use the strong drink. You can pour it out to him in specific measurements as an offering of obedience to God. In Psalm 104, the psalmist says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. David presents it as a good thing in that passage. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 10. Proverbs is often used, and we will look at these in a moment, to talk about the evils and the dangers of alcohol, and it does, but it also speaks of it as a blessing, as a good thing from the Lord. Solomon says that if you honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all you produce, your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. It's, it's one of the blessings of the Lord. And it's that little phrase right there, the blessing of the Lord, that's probably one of the most surprising things that you see as you look at this topic throughout the scriptures that oftentimes alcohol is referred to by God as a gift from himself to man. And for example, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, listen to this. And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, 
The Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock and the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. He's the one who's doing this. God is the one who is active in this situation. It's not just that the wine is there. He's the one who's blessing it to his people. Uh, Hosea chapter 2. Hosea is a prophet who marries a prostitute so he can show to Israel a picture of what they've done to God, right? Okay, so just like they've been unfaithful to the Lord, his wife has been unfaithful to him. And so this whole uh, book is written along those lines about this unfaithful nation who has left its God. And in chapter 2, verse 8, God, in speaking about Israel and her departure from him, says that Israel didn't realize that it was he who gave her her grain, her wine, and her oil. They left him, but they didn't realize that he was the one who was giving them these good things. It was his gift. Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, says, Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. And so clearly, my point here is simply to show that you find many, many references throughout the scriptures that associate alcohol with good. But you also find many, many references in scripture that associate alcohol with evil. For example, very first story, very first instance that alcohol shows up in the scriptures. Do you know what it is? Genesis chapter 9. This is the story of Noah. And Noah has come off the ark, and the land's dried out. And first thing he does, apparently, is after building his altar and getting all that taken care of, first thing he's going to do for himself is he plants a vineyard. Plants a vineyard, he grows some grapes, he makes some wine, and he gets drunk. And when he gets drunk, he gets naked. And he's laying in his tent, drunk and naked. Ham walks in and sees him. And because of that incident, whatever that means there, we'll discuss later. But because of that instance... Canaan and all of his descendants as Ham's son are going to be cursed. And this is going to become the basis of God's judgment on the Canaanites. Very first instance with alcohol in the scriptures leads to the destruction of many people. You see it again in Genesis chapter 19, where alcohol leads to something that causes great deal of problems for Israel. After uh, Lot and his wife and his two daughters have been rescued from Sodom and Gomorrah, God said, don't look back. His wife turns around and looks. She's turned into a pillar of salt. They move. Uh, Lot and his daughters escape into the mountains, and they're up there for some time, and eventually the daughters are like, well, we're never getting out of here. We're going to have no children. This is terrible. I've got a great idea. Let's get Dad drunk, and we'll sleep with him. And so incest occurs as a result of getting their dad drunk. He has no clue what's going on, the text tells you. And out of this come two nations that are a thorn in Israel's side for the rest of the Old Testament, Okay. Again, another instance where it's associated with evil. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. Solomon could speak of the good of alcohol, but he could also speak of its evil. He says, wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not what? Wise. If you are led astray by these things, you are not a wise person. And since the entire book is about wisdom, and that's what he wants you to have, to say that you're not wise is to call you a fool. If you are led astray by these things, Proverbs 21, 17, whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. 
If you're going to love these things, if they're going to control you, you're going to end up in misery. You're going to be poor and destitute. Life is going to work out very badly for you because of this alcohol. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 5. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. And that verse right there was particularly interesting to me because in trying to study for this, I decided to do some reading just on the history of alcohol. Never really studied that topic, wanted to see what was out there. And so I was reading online a little bit, some different uh, places that had written about the history. And did you know, it's not going to shock you, that alcohol is present in every culture that's been discovered throughout all time. Ancient cultures, modern cultures, wherever you go, there's alcohol present. It's made out of grapes, it's made out of grains, it's made out of apples, it's made out of whatever they have. Everyone, everywhere has made alcohol. Literally, it has collected all nations as its own, just like the verse says, okay? Everyone, where there's any records or proof, alcohol is present. And the other thing that's present in every culture that we've found, where they have found alcohol present, are warnings about its dangers. These are not Christian nations or Christian peoples or religions, But no matter what the religion, the people, the place, the culture, the time, whatever, there's warnings given about the dangers of it. It really is a greedy man. It's an arrogant man who never has enough. Its its appetite is as wide as Sheol. It will take anyone in and devour them. And so people across the entire world throughout all time have recognized that this this is a dangerous subject, the things you need to be careful about and, and, and aware of as you approach it. And then finally on this topic, just, and I won't even read through these all, think of all the many warnings about drunkenness that are found in the New Testament. All the many warnings that are there, whether it's Romans 13, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5, Ephesians 5, all of these warnings saying, do not be drunk. Do not be controlled by this thing. We're going to talk more about drunkenness next week, but there's these warnings given because there's a real danger associated with this topic. And so when you step back and, you, again, you take that high-level view, you kind of try to look at the forest from, from, the, from the helicopter, you see that, in honesty, it's not just one or the other. It can be associated with both good or evil, depending on the circumstances, depending on the context that you're in. Factual observation number three is this, is that alcohol is not prohibited for God's people. I'll let that one sink in in case anyone in here is, is shocked by that. But it is not prohibited for God's people. You will look as long as you want throughout your Bible to find something that says, do not drink. And you are never going to find it because it doesn't exist. In fact, you're going to find passages quite to the opposite. And I brought one, I put one up here on the screen for us. This is Deuteronomy 14, verses 22 to 26. This is, this is teaching on how to handle the tithe, okay? Just to kind of help prepare you for the context here. Moses is explaining to people what the Lord wants in relation to the tithe. And he says, You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, 
Then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses. Now pause before we finish it. You understand what's the situation that he's giving you, okay? You're supposed to bring your tithes, like not just 10% of your money, tithes of everything. So your crops, your herds, everything you have, 10%, your tithe is supposed to come to the Lord. You're supposed to bring it there to the tabernacle, to the temple, wherever he's, he has established his, his place of meeting. And you're supposed to enjoy it there before the Lord, part of it there before the Lord, and the rest is supposed to go to the Levites and the priests. And he's giving the situation, goes, well, what if at some point in the future, the place that you're supposed to bring it to is too far away? So that physically you can't bring it all with you, okay? Because this is a problem. There's no FedEx. There's no UPS or trains to put it on, okay? If it's too far away, what do you do? Simple. You sell it. Sell it all for a fair price. Take the money, bring it with you, and when you go to where, where the, the place of meeting is, you can buy substitutes, things in its place, to still obey the Lord, okay? So you're back where, with verse 25. You shall turn it into money, bind up the money in your hand, and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses, and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God, and rejoice you and your household. Now, if you follow that and caught it, you saw that. Uh, wait, I'm going way ahead here, aren't I? There we go. You saw that God is saying to the people, "Look, if it's too far away, bind up the money, take it in your hands, go, and then whatever you want, whatever your appetite craves, whatever you desire. If it's a steak, buy a bull. If it's some." some uh, lamb, okay, get a sheep. If you want some wine, buy some wine. If you want some strong drink, go ahead and get it and eat it there before the Lord rejoicing, you and your family, okay? How, when you read a passage like that, can you expect to find a second passage that's going to say, now don't drink? (laughs) You can't. There's none there because that's not what the Lord ever commands. There is no prohibition given by God to his people regarding alcohol. Now, there are some specific prohibitions given in specific contexts. For example, the priests were prohibited from drinking when they had to serve in the tent of meeting. Okay, when they had to go into the tent of meeting to serve before the Lord, completely sober, no alcohol at all. But after they're, they're done, that prohibition's off. It's simply while they're there. Or, for example, uh, the Nazarite, number six. If you were going to take the vow of a Nazarite, you couldn't cut your hair, you couldn't touch anything dead, and you couldn't consume anything that came from a vine, okay? Whether it was a grape, a raisin, a a, a glass of wine, nothing. But but other than these specific prohibitions given for those specific incidences, can't get it out, you don't see anything in the text prohibiting it. But number four is also true here, factual observation number four, it's also not prescribed for God's people either. It's not prohibited. It's not prescribed. It's not that you can't do it, nor is it that you have to do it. There is no command in the scriptures to drink. We are allowed to drink alcohol, but we are not commanded. In other words, whether or not you drink alcohol is not a test of obedience or faith or love of God's goodness or his blessings to you. And you say, why are you you belaboring this point? Well, it's because when in reading on this, you come across people on the pro-alcohol side who are like, well, if, if you don't enjoy alcohol, then, then you're not really enjoying God's blessings because he's made it all for us to enjoy. Oh, okay. 
that doesn't mean I don't love him because I don't drink. What are you trying to communicate with that comment? It's not commanded of me. I don't have to do this just out of some uh, misguided feeling like if I don't enjoy this one thing, then somehow I don't love God enough or I don't have enough faith in him or whatever else it may be. It's not commanded. You say, well, what about 1 Timothy 5? Paul told Timothy, drink a little wine for your stomach's sake. Well, you're right, he did. But again, that's a specific situation, specific context. It's not a general command for God's people. So as a general rule, it's not prescribed for God's people in the scriptures anywhere. Now, if you'll accept these four factual observations, and again, you're going to have to be the judges here as to whether or not I have given you facts, whether or not these are opinions or they're truly facts of scripture, I'm 100% confident in saying to you, these are factual. That these are, in fact, the general teaching of Scripture. If you'll accept these things, then you will have a fairly complete, yet condensed understanding of what the Scripture actually says on the issue of alcohol. It is a part of the assumed cultural context of the Bible. It's associated with both good and evil. It's not prohibited for God's people, but nor is it prescribed. That answers our first question but it's not enough. It doesn't answer that second question, if you'll recall, which was, all right, if these things are true, how then should I live in relation to it? And that's what we have to come back to next time. And so again, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to urge you to come back next time and make sure that you can hear the rest of this so that you can recognize how we as believers should live. But I, want, I don't want to leave you today without, without something practical here without something that should change the way you think or, or live or act in relation to this subject. I, I said at the beginning that some of you may end up being a bit disappointed because of what you hear today, a bit bothered, a bit upset by it, because what I have said doesn't match up with, in some shape uh, or another, your own personal views and preferences on this particular topic. Now, I'm, I'm guessing that for most people in this room, that's not going to be the case. If I, if I know our church at all, I'm guessing that the vast majority in here are, are, are good right now with what I just said. But I also recognize that in a room even of this size right here, I'm going to have some people on either end of the spectrum who right now are feeling they're bothered. Okay, On one end of the spectrum, I've got some people who perhaps are saying, well, you know what? I think alcohol is wrong in any context. I think it's a sin. I can't believe you just stood up there and told people it's not prohibited. I can't believe you just stood up there and said that God actually gives it as a blessing sometimes. I, I, I can't believe you do that. And so you're, you're a little disappointed because what you expected me to say didn't match up with what I actually said. On the other end of the spectrum, I would imagine there's one or two in here potentially who think I didn't say enough who feel like maybe I didn't go far enough. In fact, you're even a little worried about what I'm going to say next week because you're like, well, I just really enjoy this thing and I want to do it. And What if he, what if he tries to limit me in some way or, or, or something bad? He says something bad about the dangers of it. What, what is that going to do? And so you're not really comfortable either. Can I point out to you, to all of us, that it's in situations like these that our true allegiance, our true authority is revealed? both to ourselves and to others. I mean, if, who is the real authority in your life? That's the question here. It's easy to say that you believe in the sufficiency and supremacy of the scriptures. That's easy to give lip service to that truth. It's much harder 
to live that out when something in the scriptures don't match up with your preconceived notions. I'll never forget a story that Pastor Tim told me. Pastor Tim was our first pastor here, for those of you who don't know. But he told me a story about when he was preaching through the doctrine of election. There was a family at church who was really struggling, really struggling understanding that doctrine. And so he spent a great deal of time with them, teaching them one-on-one, him at their house, going through things with them. And he went through all this time, and they were seeing it. And they were understanding, and they were accepting, and everything was going really well. And then one day he got a phone call from them, and they said, Hey, Pastor Tim, we just want to let you know we're leaving the church. (laughs) Totally shocked. He's like, I'm coming over to your house. He said he went over to their house. He sat down with them, and he said, What's going on? He said, Well, it's about the doctrine of election. He's like, But but I thought you understood. You were accepting and believing. He's like, and they said to him, and these are the words that stood out in my mind. We see it in the text. We know it's true, but we can't accept it. Now, I appreciate the honesty in that comment more than I can say. I was saddened by it because I knew the family well and wish they had still been at the church when I got here. But you realize that's how a lot of people approach the scriptures. They see things that they know are true. They know they're there. They're not going to accept it. And when that happens, it reveals to us what is the true authority in our lives, whether or not it really is Jesus Christ in the Scriptures, which is a nice little slogan, or whether or not it's really us. And so if you're in here this morning struggling with this topic, and inside you're wanting to resist what's just laid out here throughout the Word, if you're struggling with this area, can can I just simply ask you to examine your heart as to what's the real authority? And may I also do one more thing in relation to that? May I preach the gospel to you for a moment? That Jesus Christ came and died for your sins according to the scriptures? That he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures? And you're like, I am totally lost. (laughs) Why would you say that to me in relation to me struggling on the subject right now? I'm saying it to you to remind you of the fact that because Jesus Christ came and died for you, you are not your own. He is now the Lord. He is now the master. He is now the one and only authority in your life that really matters. And if you are sitting there rebelling against that right now in your own heart, you know what you're really rebelling against? His death for you. You're you're rebelling against everything that he came to do in your life. And so as your pastor, as your friend, as your brother in Christ, I don't want that to happen for anyone in this room. And look, we all do this. Every single one, every time we sin, we're doing that. Okay, we're rebelling against what he did for us. Every time we in any way, shape, or form reject Jesus Christ, reject his word, we are doing that same exact thing. It's never right. This topic, as difficult as it may be, helps give us all a window into our souls on this one area. To ask the question, what is the true authority? Who really is the Lord? Is it me? Is it Christ? What am I going to do? How am I going to live? You have to answer that question, folks. You have to answer the Lordship question. Because if he's not the Lord of your life, then next week is really a waste of time for you. It comes down to that. If you don't really care about who's the Lord then you might as well not come back next week. Because what am I going to say to you that's different, that's going to help change your opinion now about how you should live in relation to the subject? It really is that simple and that basic. And so I urge you, I exhort you, I plead with you, submit your hearts to Jesus Christ.
so that we can live in a way that pleases him and brings glory and honor to his name. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we have laid a foundation this morning. It's not complete. There's a lot more to see, a lot more to look at. But Lord, we have learned already from your word how you see this topic. And for many in here, Lord, I, I just assume, based on, on the people that I know and love, I assume that they are willing to accept your word, accept these very basic, high-level observations as being true. And yet I know, Lord, that there may be some who really struggle with this on either end. Some struggle because they have been greatly hurt. And I do not forget that. Some struggle because of things that have happened to themselves or to others that they love. And Lord, those are, those are real feelings that, that cannot be ignored. And yet, Lord, we still have to wrestle with the text. We still have to just come to grips with what the word actually says. And this morning, Father, I pray that that has been done faithfully and honestly. For anyone who's struggling here this morning, Lord, I pray that you will help them to rest in your lordship and authority. To rest in the fact that you are supreme, that you are wiser than us all, that you know what's best in each and every situation, that your spirit is active in the hearts of believers, that you love us and care for us and protect us, even, Lord, though we don't deserve it. We, we are dust, and you know that. We, we read that first thing this morning. You know our frames. You remember that we're dust, and yet you care for us anyway. And so I pray, Lord, that for every single person in here, we will submit to you humbly, recognizing that, that you have the right to speak into any and every area and to change our thinking, our living, our actions, no matter what subject we're discussing. And then, Lord, for next Sunday, it's a week ahead now. We may not even make it to that point. We don't know. But, Lord, I pray that even throughout this week, you will prepare the hearts of all of, a all of our people so that we will come and sit in humility before the Word as we work through a passage of Scripture to understand how we should live in relation to this subject, that we will be governed by love more than anything else in this world because you have said that it's by that that all men will know that we are your disciples and so lord we want to apply it to the area of alcohol like we want to apply it to every other area of life and i pray that you will prepare the hearts of all of us to come back and to work through the text next sunday so that we can see that and know how we should live above all lord this morning i pray for unity in our church i pray that you will continue to use us and grow us and, and, and have us impact others so that they look more and more like Jesus Christ. That's our desire. That's what we want. And so Lord, we come to you now and we ask your blessing on us. Help us to be more like you even through this discussion in Jesus' name. Amen.